Welcome everyone to the weekly spotlight from Diversity in Apps. My name is Kabir Seth. It's almost May. We had a beautiful day in New York. I'm hopeful this weather continues, but my app on my phone is telling me something different. So for those of you who are listening for the first time, Diversity in Apps is a grassroots organization. We're made up of researchers, producers, parents, and teachers. And our mission is to raise awareness and engage in research about the need for inclusive, equitable, and diverse children's media. And obviously this podcast is one of the ways we do that. And in addition to that, we send out a weekly newsletter where we highlight um, pieces that we found that relate to diversity and inclusion. Usually it's from the from the week past. Sometimes we go out a little farther. And what I like to do is pick some of them um, to discuss on this podcast. Um, this week I just picked one, but that's mostly because uh, we have a fantastic guest and I wanted to get to, get to him as soon as we could. Um, and this piece that I pick, and you know that the two or three that I might pick every week, um, is really when I talk about it, it's to entice people to go out and read it, to share it. Um, as well as read the newsletter and, and share that with, with like-minded folks. Um, and like I said, we welcome folks on this podcast from the children's industry um, to discuss their work. So that includes researchers, that includes producers, that includes startups, that includes um, you know folks that have, that have been at it for a really long time. And this week, I spoke to Dr. Kevin Clark. He's the director of the Center for Digital Media Innovation and Diversity at George Mason University. He's also a founding member of Diversity in Apps. He's been um, a really great person to have um, as we've as we as we started this organization. Really tried to come up with um, what our focus is. Um, we had a great conversation about his work at the center, um, some of the work he's doing there, his recent visit to the White House as well as um, his very interesting future plans for research and work. So that's coming up. Um, But before I jump to the article, uh, I want to mention again that Diversity Naps is looking for a summer intern to help refresh our website. Um, We are, most of us are sort of on the East Coast, um, New York based, but you do not have to be in New York for this. Um, Email works just fine. Um, if you have website creation experience or know someone who does, definitely email us, diversityinapps at gmail.com with the subject um, website help. All right, let's get to this week's first article. So the article this week comes from PRI. It's by Marcel Hutchins. It's entitled, Kids Made Fun of My Stinky Lunch, Which Taught Me a Hard Lesson About Life in America. So it's actually a personal story um, about the author. Um, She moved from Cameroon when she was eight years old. And it's really talking about how she was obviously confronted with some brand new things, including in the lunchroom. So kids often teased her about what she ate. She usually brought um, food from home, traditional Cameroon food, which she mentions in the article, uh, is is heavy on rice and peanut sauce. Um, so the kids teased her, called her food stinky, etc. And you know she eventually decided to just start skipping lunch rather than um, endure the bullying. Um, and you know she makes the point that obviously she she wasn't the only kid that faced this type of teasing. And things have, have really changed now. Um, states and cities have started to bring culturally appropriate menus to school lunches. In other words, they're sort of looking at the communities that they're serving and the diversity of the communities that they're serving. And um, the food that they're then serving um, reflects that, which I thought was was uh, super interesting. And um, it's a good idea. I think everybody ag- would agree that it's a good idea to, to get coo- kids exposed to a variety of different foods but what the author talks about what Hutchins talks about is someone you know she talks to someone who was actually afraid to eat um, her traditional Chinese food at school and you know really just phased it out of her diet completely even as 
as she grew older. And it was only then, now, she's in her mid-20s, where she started to sort of bring it back and she's learned how to make some of the dishes that she enjoyed growing up. And what um, what she talks about is that sort of... Um, obviously diverse foods is great and it gives people exposure but she mentioned that if you know when she was going down the lunch line if scallion pancakes had sort of been in the cafeteria line something that she ate at home all the time and now that her classmates were getting exposed to that or eating that she really probably would have been more likely to share her Chinese culture in school so you know I I really like this um, the, the overall article, but this particular anecdote really struck me because um, I grew up in Michigan in a school that was like 99% white, and I never I never brought food from home. I and mostly it wasn't because I was afraid of being teased. Honestly, it just like never crossed my mind. I I probably preferred like Nacho Supreme pizza bagels and cheeseburgers or whatever they were serving in the cafeteria than to you know, what we ate, you know, three or four times a week, um, at home, Indian food. Um, but that being said, I do remember specifically my mom putting together a few days a year, sort of where a piece of my, um, Indian culture would come through. She created an international food day at my elementary school. You know, there were certain, every year we sort of did a presentation on Diwali which is an Indian holiday, and, you know, she generally just tried to bring different pieces of Indian culture to my school when we would go to India, usually it was, like, over Christmas break, when we came back, you know, we would um, share some of the the Indian gifts or the Indian crafts that we had bought there, or, you know, maybe even give some to our teachers, but it was, like, a way to sort of bring your culture back, and I still remember those things, and when the author was was talking about it, um, you know, she mentions that eventually she did sort of embrace the American food, and she did it almost in a way to to help her make friends. But she also learned that you know it was okay to for that her mom spoke French, and it was okay to eat African food. And um, I think you know the these sorts of ideas of, of sort of creating culturally diverse menus that reflect the communities that you're serving is is great but it also allows a child to sort of um bring their whole self to school and sort of share their cultural background without being ashamed of it or hiding it and i know that certainly um that certainly happened to me so um i really like this article all right um, I want to get to my conversation with Kevin, but je- definitely check out the newsletter this week. We have stuff about diversity at the Tony Awards, uh, Disney's first Latina princess, and Rainbow Me, which is a new uh, video on demand service focused on diversity and inclusion. All right, let's get to Kevin. All right, guys, uh, this week I'm really excited to have Dr. Kevin Clark. He is the founder and director for the Center for Digital Media Innovation and Diversity. He's also one of the founding members of Diversity in Apps. Kevin, thanks so much for coming on. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. So you started out with a background. You studied uh, computer science, and then you worked for a number of years in, in the private sector, and then... Um, and then joined the uh, the academic world where you you founded um, the center. So can you sort of uh, walk me through how how that um, happened, and then sort of um, a little bit more information about about the center? Okay, great. So um, you know, I I started out as a computer scientist. I took a computer science course in okay. high school at the career center, and um, that really just kind of turned me on to computer science, and so. Okay. What uh? What were you? Was that like C plus plus days, or that was even oh, farther back? <laughs> it was farther back. It was uh, it was COBOL. Oh and, wow! Okay. Okay. Yeah. Machine uh, language was, yeah. was the hardest class I took. I remember um, Pascal. Did you do Pascal? Pascal. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah. So um, yeah. when when object oriented code came along, I was like, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a it was a game changer for sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you started out so, there. So I started out in computer science and new to the, uh, 
um, that I wanted to be a computer science um, programmer, but also wanted to be a teacher. And so, um, make a long story short, I ended up um, getting a, a master's in computer science and then going on and getting a, a doctorate in instructional systems because there was a way to combine computer science and education. I see. And so, um, I did an internship um, while I was getting my doctorate at a company in San Diego that made educational software. And then that's when, for me, the light went off when I okay. said, oh my God, you know, I can actually combine everything and right. do all this. Right. And then um, I went and worked for that, um, for those people who I, who I had internship with. We, um, they had actually... Um, left the company where I had interned and started a new company. And nice. so they asked me to come and join them at the new company. And, and so I um, went out and joined the startup. It was in the very early stages. I think I was like employee number six or number eight. <laughs> okay. And it was the best job I ever had. I mean, nice. it was, and I did everything from right, right. copies to, and so um, fast forward to, um, working at a university, you know, from, from, from the company, once the company went public and everybody kind of went and did the next thing, sure. um, I had decided that um, I had been fortunate to, to have this experience and I wanted to share it with um, as many people as possible. Right. And by having a, a PhD, I thought, okay, I can go teach. And so I can, I can um, integrate all of this experience into the classes that I teach. And so as a part of my work at the company, I had visited most urban centers um, to um, talk about the product and, and in some cases to try and convince, um, convince schools that sure. this was th their solution. Right, um, and that was eye-opening for me because I got a chance to see the the huge divide in right. access um, going from a really poor urban school district who was really just trying to um, bring buildings up to code and have right. enough textbooks for everybody to you know schools that could do a one-to-one. -one. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so when I got to university, my initial uh, research really was on the digital divide. And I started doing um, some work around um, community um, technology centers, um, access. Uh, and then um, I also began to look at the impact and effectiveness of educational video games, because that's what I had um, designed um, while, while at the company. And so I wanted to do some more research to kind of look at the effectiveness of those games. Right. And then the center idea came about really as a um, act of frustration. Um, yeah. My daughter... Um, at the time was in her princess stage and, and, <laughs> and, and wanted me to read a princess book every night. Right. <laughs> and so I had read, you know, every princess book known. And then one night she said, um, Daddy, tomorrow can we read a princess book that has a princess that looks like me? And I said, sure, sweetie. And thinking, I'll just go to Google, you know, go to Amazon right. and find a princess book. And I could not find one. Right. And I ended up driving up to Baltimore, which is you know about an hour away from where I live, yeah. uh, to get a, a book that was out of print in a museum gift shop. Wow! And it was a display. They didn't even want to sell it, but I convinced the guy <laughs> to sell it. That's to, uh, that's dedication, Kevin. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and how, as I remember how driving, how did you find it? Well, I did. I did a Google. I did an Amazon search. Oh, okay. And I found okay. that. A book had been printed, but then when I looked around, you couldn't there was, find it anymore. I couldn't oh. find it, and there was one. The closest place was in Baltimore, and I called them, and they said, "You know, we used to sell it, but we the only one we have now is the one that's on display. It's been sitting under a light for like years. It's oh faded." And I said, "I'll take it." <laughs> they said, "Really? You should look at it first. And so I drove all the way up there, and said, "Okay, fine, I'll take it." Um, so on the way, on the drive back home, I was just fuming. Right. I like, I have a PhD. I have designed educational software. It should not be this hard to find a 
freaking book, book a princess right. book for my daughter. Yeah. And so um, my my um, sabbatical was coming up and I said, okay, I want to take this time to actually create a center that actually does uh, research around these issues that actually helps to um, scour the, the country and identify um, um, innovative, diverse products. And I also wanted to create a connection to industry. Okay. And so that's how the Center for Digital Media Innovation and Diversity was born. And so in 2009, oh wow, okay, yeah, it, the center was chartered, and I basically just started uh, writing grants and um, networking and making connections around three things. And and the center really has three goals. One, mm -hmm. um, as I mentioned, is to do research around this area of diversity in, um, in media. Right. The second is to provide access, to provide an, an outlet for um, uh, diverse products and people who create um, diverse products. And then uh, third was to begin to make a connection between industry and um, media organizations. Because what I, was, what I found is that as a professor, um, people were very open to talking and collaborating, but oftentimes um, higher ed doesn't see themselves as a collaborator with industry in that way. You know, they I think, see. okay, we're doing research and right. industry is about making money and, and right. you know, never to shall meet. Right, there's a clear line. I see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I was like, no, you know what? That line doesn't have to exist because right. industry knows how to make stuff and get it to market. And right. researchers, we know how to tell you whether it works or not. And right. so, right. Um, the 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 center has been doing that since 2009, and I have um, reached across the country to collaborate with people as well as uh, within my own uh, university. Right, right. You do a ton of work with with a, a a variety of different universities all over all over the the country. Yeah. Um, and one of the one of the things that you're um, focused on is is a recent study that you've started called the African American Family's Use of Technologies for Learning Outside of School, which is a mouthful. But um, yeah, so w talk to me a little bit uh, about that. Um, sort of w when the study got started, what um, you know, what you guys are are hoping to achieve and and plans going forward. Yeah, so that study, um, funded by the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, was mm -hmm. really focused on um, how do African-American families use technology for learning um, inside their homes or outside of school. And the, the idea for that came about because um, I had gone, I, I had been aware of several uh, studies that talked about tech, uh, technology use by mm -hmm. um, everyone, you know, right, Latinos, right. African Americans, and it really um, did two things. It primarily focused on pattern usage. You know, how much time do you spend on on your cell phone? How much time do you spend on your laptop? Mm -hmm. um, and then when it did focus on specific groups, those groups it, uh, were uh, typically um, in a formal. Um, educational setting inside of school. I see. And okay. so uh, my colleague Kim Scott at, from Arizona State and I thought, you know, we should really um, try and get a study to look at how African American families are using technology inside their homes because mm -hmm. that is a real, that's a truer measure of how people use technology when you can get a window into um, their home use. And so we worked with um, the the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and um, got this project funded. And it's been about two years. So this okay. is 2016. So I think 2014 mm -hmm. it was funded. And the goal was to do a national survey of about a thousand families, oh, wow. meaning um, uh, parents and mm -hmm. their teen children. So Okay, so it's focused on teenagers. Yes, focused on teenagers, 11 to 17. Okay. Um, and so we were deliberate about that because we thought that those, um, that age group um, were the most heavy users of technology. Right. And so rec recognizing that, that we couldn't 
survey everybody at once. And so the goal is to really look at um, not only how teens and parents are using technology for learning inside their homes separately, but also uh, what the interaction is. And we were real specific um, that we wanted to focus on learning. So this is not a study on, you know, how much TV do they watch? Right, right. This is, you know, how do you use it to write a paper, do your homework? Um, I see. Those things. And so um, the study has um, a couple of parts. The first part was we conducted focus groups around the country. And so we went to um, Atlanta, Chicago, New York City, mm-hmm. o- Oakland, and Oakland, California, and Shaw, Mississippi. And we conducted focus groups um, with parents and teens asking them about how they use technology um, for learning inside their homes. And what we found was um, we're still analyzing the data. Yeah. uh, And we're going to do a full uh, release uh, in in the fall of 2016. But initially, what, um, you know, primarily what we found was that. Um, teens and, and their parents look at technology differently um, and that in some instances um, uh, economics does not play as much of a factor as we thought it did in some cases when we think about um, access but it does play a factor in instances um, of, of um, what types of activities are occurring so the focus groups really helped us to create an instrument and to create a survey to make sure we weren't missing anything, to make sure that we were on target with the types of um, questions we were asking. So after we conducted all the focus groups, then we um, used that information to disseminate, um, to first to create and then disseminate a survey nationally. And we, and we are working with um, Vicki Rideout, who... Uh-huh. Um, has done has a lot of experience with um, conducting national surveys. She used to work with the Kaiser Family Foundation. She has worked with the Cooney Center, and okay. she's just really, really great at conducting these national surveys. And so we're we're excited that um, we're in the process of analyzing the data. And the hope is that we use the results of the data of this survey to help inform how we design and develop um, educational technology solutions. Um, right, right. So. Th- that makes a lot of sense. If if we take a step back, you mentioned a couple things that I wanted to, to understand a little bit more. One was you said teens look at technology differently than their parents. Um, what what did sort of the focus group, um, like what, what sort of uh, results did you get from yeah, that meeting? Yeah. How, how did they look at it differently? Yeah, one, one anecdote is that teens thought that, for example, their cell phones or their smartphones mm-hmm. were an essential part of their everyday life. They, oh, wow. they had to have it. And it was, there was no, it was no question. It was like, you know, it was like, it was like your ID or, you know. Right, right. It was and, like if you left it, they would like – if you forgot, it would be like they were naked, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Parents thought that the smartphone was um, not essential and that, it, and that it was, you know, something extra. Yeah, yeah. And, okay. and, you know, when you hear that, you think, well, wait a minute. You know, most parents have smartphones. Yeah. But they thought that for teens, that teens really looked at smartphones as status symbols. They only used them to, you know, communicate with their friends. Right. Um, and so helping us, the discussion with the teens helped at least me to see the types of activities that they were actually doing with their phones. We had yeah. one, one young lady, one teenage girl who talked about writing a term paper on uh-huh. her smartphone. Wow, and the reason was she um, had to commute an hour to and from school. So it was and an so hour one way. Wow, it was so an hour one way. And so for her, you know, she didn't have a laptop. Yeah. And so for her, using the smartphone to to do that work was it just seemed normal to her. Yeah. And so that's just one example of how parents and and, and young people, um, their teens are. Yeah. are or have different opinions. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I guess that makes a lot of sense. The 
teenagers now are sort of digital natives. They sort of see, um, I mean, that would that would make sense of how, how they view their, their cell phones and sort of parents. There's a clear generational gap there. The other thing that you mentioned was that economics don't play as much of a factor as you thought, or they play a factor in certain areas, but not other areas. Um, what did, what did sort of the, that tease out? What, what were you able to, I know the full analysis didn't fall, yeah, but what have yeah. you guys sort of started to see? Yeah. Well, you know, one, one instance where we saw that is that, um, you know, clearly economics does play a role when you talk about access and who okay. has, who has what, and who has how many of a particular device. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we saw is that when you ask, um, teens specifically what types of activities they want to get involved in um, it was the same you know people uh, young people wanted to um, get involved in activities that allowed them to create they wanted to build websites they wanted to mod games they wanted to start an e-business and that was the same regardless of the uh, economic level I see I see and um, one of the things I wanted to go back to, you know, you had mentioned that sort of there's um, there needs to be a better connection between industry and academia, the research that's that's being done. Um, do you feel like since the center started or really just generally over the last um, 10 years, let's say, that there has been a like what has sort of been the response from industry in terms of of reaching out? Do you feel like the there is um, that there is more of a uh, of a connection between the two? Yeah, I think um, what I've seen is that industry is actually um, hungry for connections to higher ed, and they want to have these partnerships and collaborations. Um, the, the challenge is that higher ed sometimes doesn't move as fast. So, you know, yeah. I, I often tell people, you know, you know, we're on a semester system, right? So, so everything really is about, you know, you know, September to December and from January to May and um, companies don't work that way. And so what I've found is that um, I've had to adjust and say, okay, you need this in a month when normally it would take three months. Um, Or I would design it for three months. And, and I think the more that um, those in higher ed can be flexible about uh, how they work with um, industry, I think the better. Because, you know, the, the reality is that industry wants to get it right. Yeah, yeah. Because for them, it's about, um, it's about return. It's about getting market share. It's about making money. And so they're not just out there saying, you know, we don't want to do, we don't want to do this because it's taking um, too much time. They are saying, we want to figure out how do we get it right? How can we get access to the largest market share? Um, and how can we um, address the needs of the most um, people we can, especially when it comes to um, educational uh, technology or, or, or media for kids. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. I, I would think that industry would just naturally be hungry for sort of um, the answers that research can provide and and help them sort of design the best product. So um, Yeah, but we as researchers sense. sometimes, we get arrogant and we think, okay, I'm the smartest person here and you have to, you know, it doesn't matter that you're trying to um, satisfy your shareholders, or right, or right. or make money so that you can pay your employees. We need we need to be pure about the research, and I don't yeah. have a problem with rigorous uh, research, but I also think it needs to be relevant and applicable. I mean, mm. it, it, it's, it's useless to do a study that takes three years to implement. You write it up, and then at the end of the day, it goes into a journal that three hundred people read. Yeah, no. yeah, for that, sure. That that I mean, for the type of work that I do, that is not helpful because yeah. things are moving. On you know, things are changing. If not daily, then you know, weekly or monthly. Yeah, I I think we we talk about that all the time um, with diversity apps when we're making those uh, working on those guidelines. I think because we have sort of people who are in the academic world, but also people who have have sort of worked in the industry or both, they sort of 
there's a natural sense that look we don't want this to sort of sit on a shelf and you know one person from the company has looked at it this should be something that's sort of interactive and and something that's um that's user friendly and, and that they can look at consistently and and have um solid research behind it but that can also help them sort of when they're designing the product so yeah that and, makes and, sense. and then you know last thing i'll say is that you know industry needs to also adjust in, in terms sure. of the way they they view higher ed and we are not just you know um, um, service providers, you know, yeah. can't just call me up and, and ask <laughs> for my expertise and think I'm just going to give it because give it for free, especially right. just right. because that's how I am. Um, sure. And so sure. I think um, uh, companies need to begin to look at um, um, higher ed and higher ed professionals as professionals and say, look, right. okay, just as just in the same way, I would talk to. I would pay this person as a consultant. When I talk to this professor, I need to also grant them the same the same respect. Right, right. No, that that totally makes a lot of sense. In fact, you were actually a, a couple of weeks ago. You were at a an event um, that both sort of had both academics and um, folks from the from the industry. There it was at the White House. It wasn't your your first visit to the White House, right? You were you, <laughs> oh, you're yeah, like yeah. A, you're like a regular there now. <laughs> I'm so, there all the time. <laughs> no. so this particular event was a was a conference focusing on breaking down gender stereotypes in media and toys. You actually were on on one of the panels focused on on gender disparities. So. Can you can you tell us a little bit about what maybe specifically about your panel and then sort of what you felt like were some prime takeaways from from that event? Yeah, so um, so it was it was a great panel and it, it and it had um, in the room were were researchers were uh, people from industry were people mm-hmm. from community based organizations and so it, it was a unique mix of people which I appreciated right. and right. so our panel really looked at this notion of um, gender and diversity in uh, toys as well as children's media. And so what I talked about specifically was, um, first of all, I talked about uh, video games and how, because that's kind of where my where my um, uh, experience started. And how, for example, when you look at video games, um, when you look at the developers, um, you know, eighty percent of the developers of video games are white, yeah. and eighty percent of the video game characters are, are white. So there's right. a match. But right. then, but then when you look at um, other groups, for example, uh, African American, it's only two point five percent of the developers are are, are identified as African American, um, mm-hmm. but ten point seven percent of the characters are identified as african-american that sounds like a good thing but then when you take out the athletes and the criminals from those video games you have a very small number and so the point that i was making about video games in general is that um if you want your video games to be more diverse then you need to start with the developers um and so when we look at for example gender Mm-hmm. It's clear that there's a fifty, there's about fifty-fifty split in terms of men and women um, who play video games. But when you look at the developers, seventy-six percent of the developers are men, and only twenty-two percent are hmm. are women. And so, um, having the people who who um, who create the the media uh, be represented in that process is as important as um, having the people. Uh, show up as as, right. ca- as characters. Um, right. It almost it it would almost like to me it seems more important. Like it, uh, I've said this before, sort of with with the Oscar so white controversy and sort of the the question about um, how do we get more movies that have African Americans or have more women in them. The people behind it, like you're saying, the developers who are making the game, that to me seems to be where we where we have to make the change first yeah and 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 it's and to me it's you know a lot of people talk about the the lack of available talent to fill these positions you know that's one of the first you know things people say oh there's no there's no pool there's no pipeline right you know i hear that in higher ed and and i hear um with media organizations and my response is often i hear you and i know that you that 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 has been your experience but 
I think the issue is not so much about pipeline as it is about network. And what mm-hmm. I mean by that is when companies and organizations go and look for people or advertise for jobs, they advertise in networks that they are familiar with. Yeah. Instead of looking at other networks that either are non-traditional or that they are not familiar with. I always jokingly say, you know, okay, if you need, you know, African-American game developers, give I can give you a list by the end of the day. And the yeah. pro- and the reason is because I have a different I have access to different networks than you're probably accessing. And so right. um so so th- the panel really looked at um this notion of how do we um get those types of media to be um more diverse. You know, I talk specifically about um one one toy example was there's a line of 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 toys uh dolls that is um really popular in Nigeria and it's African American it's African dolls mm-hmm. um and they are out you know they outsell um the the highest selling doll that that that's here in this country and right. the reason is because it looks like the audience um, that had with varying hairstyles, varying uh, clothes, and we know that this is not an anomaly. We know mm-hmm. that when you create media where the target audience is reflected in that media and they see themselves, they will be more apt to adopt it and 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 consume it. And so um, that was my um, my. A part of my presentation is to really talk about, you know, how we know that that's important. And then I sure. um, ended with, you know, talking about television ratings and how when you look at the shows that have the highest ratings, mm-hmm. it, it typically um, it's typically the shows that have the most diverse cast. Right. And those shows are the highest rated across um ethnic groups so you have white families and their most highest rated shows are shows that are diverse and so you know this whole notion of well you know if we try to do that we're not gonna um um, hit our marks is is not true because we've seen um that diversity actually does uh pay off in the long run for sure for sure i think um i think you've touched on sort of a couple things one a lot of this stuff are myths that have sort of been that have sort of been perpetuated. This idea that well, there isn't a talent pool that is diverse enough to sort of build into this fifty-fifty men and women or build towards more African American developers. It's just that isn't true. It, it comes down to like you're saying, it's the people you know, it's the people you hire from, and I think we're all guilty of it. I mean, when you're you're at a job and you're you're looking to to hire who are the first people you reach out to the people that you know in in your network well you have to change your network and expand your network it's not a case where the the talent isn't there and then the second thing is um media companies you see this both like you said in television ratings and you see it in in movie ticket receipts casts that that are more diverse and both on tv and movies the bottom line is better and i mean diversity wins i I think that um, is the biggest takeaway. So, um, and you mentioned there, there were folks from, um, from all over, um, it, you know, there were researchers, there were, um, industry folks there. I think there were Netflix was there. Um, there mm-hmm. was a few other, uh, media companies there. And then, um, also obviously toy companies as well. I think even, mm-hmm. even Barbie was there, correct? I think, well, Lego was there. I think there was okay. somebody there from Mattel also. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. Great. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like it was a it was a great event. Um, in terms of you know, th- these are the the African Americans um, study that you're doing on on how technology is being used outside of the school. That's one of the things you're you're working on. I know when we were exchanging emails, you hinted that there were a couple things um, that you're working on over the next few months as well. Um, what what do those sort of of look like? And do those fall under the the center as well as are, are, are these sort of personal projects? Um, well, it's a, it's a combination. Um, sure. The, the, I'll, I'll talk about the, the center stuff. Um, okay. The, 
a project that is kind of in the works that I'm re- I'm actually just trying to find a way to fund is yeah. I was talking with um, someone at, at at a um one of these White House events and she was um, expressing frustration that as she tried to sell the notion of diversity to media companies, mm-hmm. she could not find clip art of um, diverse of African Americans and Latinos doing science activity find um, clip art of African Americans and Latinos um, engaged in, in STEM activities and this was a person that works for a, a, a science organization uh-huh. and I, I didn't think she was right and so I came home and I did a couple of Google searches and she's right and so wow. I thought this is crazy and so one, one project that I'm um, thinking about now is essentially creating a, a clip art resource that basically just features people of color doing science uh-huh. so that when you're trying to say you know this 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 is a myth and and there are people out there who are of color doing this stuff that there is a representation to actually back that up right that right. people can use in slides and in um, things in media presentations that, that they make. So, um, that's it's a great. Simple, that, it's a simple that, I know it sounds so simple and sound, yet, yeah, yeah, it needs to be out there. That resource needs to exist. So that's yeah. great. So, that's so really I'm trying awesome. to figure out how to fund, how to get funding to, to do clip art. Right. So when I, when I, I know when I explain that to my wife, she's like, okay, what do you do? <laughs> how is this a job? Yeah, <laughs> no, I know. This sounds like a simple kickstart. I feel like we should just, uh, we should put it up there we can make a quick video of it. I like this idea, Kevin. This is great. Um, so, you know, I, I think this sort of touches on this notion. You you sat on um, a panel for us at the um, with the Children's Media Association back in uh, in November. And one of the things you talked about is, you know, you work closely with industry. You're asked at times to come in to consult. And one of the things that you find sort of frustrating is this idea that you were brought in towards the end of this process. I think we've we've both talked about mm-hmm. sort of hiring is super important, the network that you're looking at and sort of what the behind the scenes folks look look like, the ones that are, are creating the product. And then at times you're sort of brought in to, as you sort of put it, create this diversity sauce mm-hmm. and sort of there's this layer that we're that you're add on that you add on at the end and it, it sort of um creates a you know it creates a diverse product but not sort of in a way that is is meaningful and what would um i guess what have you seen or have you seen that sort of improved do you feel like industry is is doing a better job of sort of recognizing this task has to be taken on as a company value but also as sort of very early on in the project yeah, I think probably about seven to ten years ago, it mm-hmm. was that. It was, you know, get the diversity guy in here, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think now, probably in the last five to seven years, companies that I've been working with, I've actually found them to be pretty um, courageous in a way because, sure. you know, everybody's talking about diversity and a lot of companies are now realizing, okay, we really need to tackle this thing head on. Sure. But, but companies, I mean, let's face it, they have existing structure, right? They got departments yeah. of people. They can't just walk in and just fire a whole <laughs> bunch of people and say, okay, we're going to make it diverse. We're going to hire, you know, yeah. that, that's not going to happen. Um, but what I've found is that companies have been really um, authentic and and um, it's been a part of what they want to do. Um, from a business standpoint, so right. when they call me in, um, a lot of you know, a lot of times they'll say, "Look, you know what? We don't have the answer, and but we want it. We want to get it right, and yeah. you help us, you know, get f- figure this out." Um, and so what I what I am finding is that um, the more and more companies that do that, the more successful that those companies are. Um, but it's a slow process, and a company has to be really um, dedicated to say, okay, this is not a one-off thing, right? This is not yeah. 
bring Kevin in, he'll do a diversity workshop and we'll all be better. Right, um, right. Doesn't work that way. And so, and, and typically when companies approach me and want me to do that, I'll, I'll say no. Cause I, and I'll tell them why I say, look, I don't think this is going to work for your organization, especially yeah. what you're trying to do. Right. Um, but the groups that I do work with understand that this is a long term commitment. And sure. then, um, the, the, the challenge that I do see though, is that I try and get companies to recognize that diversity is as important as the content areas that they oftentimes plan for. So when you're building something and it's science, um, you bring in a science person early on. Yeah. Right. right. You don't right. build it and then and, <laughs> and then bring a science. Right. You don't do that. Right. And so getting organizations to recognize that diversity and inclusion uh, is something that needs to be a part of the process early on, I think is still something that organizations are getting used to, as right. well as um, getting used to this notion of diversity as being um, multi-layered. Mm-hmm. So whether it's ethnicity, whether it's gender, whether it's gender identity, whether it's economics or or family situation, all of those things need to be uh, taken into consideration when we talk about diversity. And it's not yeah. just it's not just do we have the right color palette. Right. It really should be, you know, are the are the characters interacting in, in a variety of ways? Are we prevent are we providing a variety of solutions or, mm-hmm. or um, situations? Um, all of the, those things I think make up uh, this you know, what we're referring to. Yeah, as that makes a, a lot of sense. I think both sort of how you mentioned this idea that diversity needs to get elevated to a place where it's a peer of. Um, like you said, thinking about it as not something that is sort of added on. It's it's built into your organization, I think. And then the other piece that I think we talk about um, or even struggle with at, at Diversity Naps is, is focusing on this idea of different types of, of diversity. When we had uh, Raul on from, from Tiny Bop, he talked mm-hmm. about how, um, yeah, we have, you know, over 15%, 50% women. There's a ton of languages spoken in this office. But, you know, a lot of the folks that are, that, we hire are from from ivy leagues and and you know Mm -hmm. we have a clear and they're um you know they're probably upper middle class um kids so it it comes and so there's there's a another piece of diversity there that um that might get might be getting lost yeah um and and it's another thing to to focus on and and will only make your organization um stronger so um to sort of bring this back full circle i have a daughter um, she's just over one, and do you think when she, when she enters her her princess phase, I don't know if she will, but if, if she does, do you think I'll have to drive an hour um, to to find uh, to find a book to that where I can find a character that looks like her? You know, I hope not. And you should start, you should start looking now. It sounds like it, but do do you feel like? Do you feel like there's a few rays of light out there? Like when you when you look at maybe just specifically children's media, is there something that you sort of look at and say, you know, they're they're getting it? And and for someone who's been at this for so long, I think, um, you know, there are times where I'll be reading an article or sort of um, sort of see something and, and you feel like you've we've taken you know five steps back or are we really making progress? But as someone who's been trying to move the needle now for a long time, do you feel like there are rays of lights and you know you can point to specific specific things yeah i mean there are specific companies and i i, I probably i shouldn't name names but there right. are there are companies that i think get it and they, and uh-huh. they are trying and 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 what's in, what's interesting is that they're not tooting their horn and saying look over here you know we're we're the diversity poster child they sure. have incorporated it into their mission as a company and so Mm -hmm. it's not it's not um for them it's not not anything special outside of this is what we need to do to be a successful organization yeah Um, so i do see a few a few rays of light um but i also think that the tent really does need to be expanded and when we look at the number of uh companies that produce content and the um, access into the um, entrepreneurial spaces where you can can create um, this type of content. 
um, there aren't as many women and there aren't as many people of color. And so I think figuring out ways to increase um, um, those pools of people, I think, is... is yeah, just yeah, really yeah, yeah, yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. I think it goes back to how you talked about sort of access. And, you know, the teenagers want to do the same things on their smartphones, smartphones as all other all teenagers, teenagers, but, you know, it comes down to access and be able to do that. And now sort of joining a startup, creating a startup is the thing to do. And giving, you know, minorities and minorities and women an opportunity to do that. That um, needs to needs sort of, sort of um, be looked at to make sure. sure. Um, um, you know, the, I think there are a ton of organizations doing it, but um, sort of they, they, we, we need to continue to do it. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and that's actually the last um, part. That's my um, my um, I'm on sabbatical now. Uh-huh. That's my project. Is that I'm looking at a way of create to create to design and create a new. Uh, incubator uh-huh. um, that focuses on ed tech and media um, for diverse uh, audiences, but that um, approaches the incubator model differently. Right sure. now, the incubator model is okay. You go, you and a group of people go off for two months, right? And you live in a house, and it's like you know, Big Brother or Survivor. Yeah. At the end, you pitch. Well, there there are a lot of people who don't have two months that they can give up because. Right working they got kids they got you know sure and so um i'm working with some people now to figure out how do we create an incubator model that allows you to to step in step out yeah to uh, dedicate uh, uh chunks of time that are convenient to you that still allow you to care for your family and that still allow you to to work but that this innovation um, um, ecosystem um, isn't doesn't just have to be made up of people who can give up um, right, two right. months of their time, and so my hope is that as we begin to stand up that um, incubator model, that we can get more um, more more people into this innovation um, sphere and begin to diversify. Um, you know who who we see as as innovators in this. Yeah. That that's uh that sounds really exciting, really awesome. Um, mm-hmm. we're gonna have to bring you on in in the summer to uh, to tell us how uh, how that's going. Yeah, um, yeah. Kevin, really appreciate you uh, coming on. Where can um, where can the folks read more about about the center as as well as uh, as well as your work? Yeah, so you can access my website, which is at uh, cdmid.gmu.edu, which is Center for Digital Media Innovation and Diversity. Cdmid.gmu.edu. Awesome. I will. Uh, I'll make sure I put that in the show notes as well. Great. Thanks a lot for coming on, Kevin. All right. Thanks for having me. Take care. You too.